these things I'm seeing and I look around me and I realize that I may actually be the only person observing these things. Feel stuck with work? Press pause and listen in. Talk Human to Me, a podcast for entrepreneurs with nothing about entrepreneurship. In our show, founders take a break and talk to us about their identity beyond their company. I'm Jeff Shao, your host for today. In this episode, supported by The Abstract and Maori Audio, I talk with Penelope Douglas, Chief of Strategy and Revenue at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. But what she does is only part of who she is. Why does she never spend time wondering what could have been from past parts of her life? And what wild realization did she have while walking through a city district and watching the world around her? Grab a seat and kick back while our guest reflects and reconnects with the personal experiences and roots that created a foundation for their values, philosophies, and outlook on humans. We start each episode with the same question. What about humans strikes you the most? I guess most, when forced to think most, you know, I like to think in all sorts of shades, but I continue to think it's, it's humans' ability to be resilient. I guess I do think that that's what strikes me first about humans. It's, it's also just by observing people. I'm a, you and I have talked about this before. I'm a, a people watcher. I'm a, an observer. I'm a listener by nature. That's just how I'm made up. And I'm constantly struck by how, particularly in a time like ours now, which is a very complex time, people can be so stressed or so hurt or so badly wounded by a life event. And yet we have this amazing ability to pick ourselves up and go along. You know, it's, it's, sort of like what life expects of us and we we fulfill that expectation for you personally were there events where the act of resilience had to really kick in absolutely (laughs) i i mean i think i i think that a pattern of my life actually includes resilience both resilience that i've called upon in a great joyful way. For example, as an athlete, there's, you know, the amazing sort of feeling of, I know how to do this. I'm, I'm able to know what it's going to feel like when I'm exhausted in this marathon or whatever. And I, I know what it's like to overcome that, you know, so there's that sort of almost joyful kind of resilience that is part of self-knowledge of your physical body. Same thing in terms of a joyful awareness of resilience in terms of your awareness of your mental body, you know, the sort of ability to be endlessly patient as a social entrepreneur, for example, or a collaborator. But then there's the other kind of example of resilience that I've had many times in my life, which comes from personal experiences of being terribly wounded or having a family tragedy strike or having to endure a long lasting cycle of family dysfunction as it for me as a youth that was part of my young adulthood as we've talked about before so that comes from a different place that kind of resilience that's for me like if i were to point to a part of my body where that comes from you know there's no part of that for me that first comes from my heart or my head it almost comes from like my stomach <laughs> it's just very 
very like visceral. At this point in your life and when you j- were just for a moment were kind of reflecting on all the past experiences, especially through the ups and downs of relationships, whether it's family or friends or just other tragedies or even just complete utter joys that happened in your life. What is your retrospect Hmm. of that? When you reflect on it now, what is that feeling in your stomach? Well, it's mostly joy. I feel when I look in retrospect, I rarely feel, in fact, I don't think I ever feel sadness except at the loss of someone dear to me that can still make me always will make me feel very very sad but in terms of life experiences generally when i think in retrospect um the overwhelming feeling is one of joy it's one of you know like holy fill in the blank i am so fortunate to be living you know to have have this amazing life to take yet more bites out of, you know, that's, that's, I guess, again, part of who I am. You often hear from people saying, even though these things happen, I would never trade it. Do you find that there is a truth to it being an important part of everybody's life? Generally, yes. But I will say that for me anyway, I would feel a little bit disingenuous if I laid claim to not wanting to trade anything um, out of my past. I think there are some things that I'd be happy not to have experienced. It doesn't mean, again, that in retrospect, I don't feel an overall sense of joy about the experiences in total, but I'd absolutely trade (laughs) a few of those past moments for not having had to experience them. In the sense of, would you be glad to give it away or not have it be yours. <laughs> right. As long as I don't have to identify who would have to take it from me, you know what I mean? Like I don't want to give it to somebody and have them have to have it, but I wouldn't mind not having had it myself. Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So, we don't do canned ad spots at Talk Human to Me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors we work with. I'm going to give Lala Openny a quick call, the co-founder and creative director of The Abstract. Hello? Hey, Lala, this is Jeff. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What value does your company have that personally means a lot to you? With the abstract, our practice is essentially healing and dealing, sharing and caring. Um, This personally means a lot to me because it demystifies mental health work and reminds me that we're all living through the same human condition together. Like none of us lives in a bubble. And in my own journey to healing, it's been a give and take, ebb and flow, rest and recovery, coping and resiliency. Um, It's definitely hard work, but I've learned that sometimes the most profound work I can do is, is to keep things simple take some deep breaths, remember that I love and accept myself and my emotions as they are. There's enough organized chaos and disconnect that we deal with on a day-to-day. Healing and dealing and sharing and caring is not only important, it's revolutionary. Thank you, Lala. Now, back to the conversation. Do you ever do that retrospective wish if this 
had not happened and it was filled with something else. Do you ever have that wonder of what you have would have become instead? How did you get to that point? Did you were you always able to just let things go? So I, I can answer your question, which is despite the fact that I can <clears throat> very readily say that I would be happy not to have had some of those experiences, I never spend any time considering what would be different for me, like how I might have turned out differently. You know, when when someone from a, a past part of your life, you know, checks in on LinkedIn or something, there might be that nanosecond when you decide whether to connect or not, when you you have a moment of saying, huh, if I'd spent more time with her or him, I wonder what life would have turned out like. That's about as far as it goes for me. Otherwise, I just, again, feel I'm very fortunate. I'm very, I feel very rich. I experience emotion really strongly, and I'm kind of an introvert, so I'm pretty introspective. And so for me, the sort of sensitivity that's also part of my makeup, in other words, that, that set of emotions that come, come strongly to me, all, all kinds, joy or sorrow, I think is directly connected to the answer to the question about when you look back, you know, would you try to change something in my ability to move on? I, I don't know that I'll be able to express that perfectly to you, but I know that the two are connected. So it's the <clears throat> not blocking the emotion, I guess, or, or not even, I wouldn't even know how, I don't think, to block an emotion. <laughs> I, I just think uh, that isn't part of me. I think by, by sort of being pretty tuned that way to sort of the need to be able to experience those emotions and and be have plenty of space to be introspective probably helps and that is probably part of the reason why i have an inclination to be able to move forward i also from early childhood lived in a in a family situation that was quite wonderful and happy for many many years and mostly happy and one of the things that our parents taught my siblings and me was the importance of spending time by yourself and that i think is also tied to the ability to keep moving forward i think it's all tied together i guess there is a reason why human beings if they're alone for too long they can go kind of crazy in their own head in those moments where you were alone, what transformations, what thoughts went through your head when you were able to come out and rejoin friends and get back with family at the around the dinner table? How do you think it's developed you as a person? There's being alone in an environment of complete trust that you will not remain alone. You know that that you're unconditionally loved and that there is cohesion in your life emotionally and socially and all sorts of other, you know, that you're not lonely. For me, it's kind of a lovely opportunity to, to just be thoughtful. <laughs> so again, maybe it has partly to do with how you're wired, so to speak. But I think it's important for me to say that when I think of being alone, I immediately associate it with something beautiful. So I'm either outdoors in some really beautiful place even as a child, I'm underneath a big avocado tree with my favorite stuffed animal, you know, having an adventure, imaginary, partly. Or on one of the trails that I love, and there's nothing more satisfying than being allowed to be alone. Or I'm uh, in the ocean body surfing, you know, probably the most important 
activity that I could name for my health and well-being. The other alone, uh, of course, is in a studio or with my, I don't have to be in a formal studio anywhere with my my art making material. Mm -hmm. So when I think of being alone, as you can see, it's like, it's like opening up a candy box for me. Whereas I think for others of different kinds of personalities, just the very thought of being alone right there before you ever even imagine the next step, you're already going, not for me. So I think that's a really important, well, it, it's an important thing to think about related to each of us, you know, but for me alone equals like all those different treasured places where I have some of the most important experiences of my life other than with those I love. Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So we don't do canned ad spots at Talk Human to Me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors that we work with. I'm going to give Mauricio Escamilla a quick call, the founder and executive creator of Maori Audio, a full-service audio, sound design, and music production studio based in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mauricio. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What core value of Maori Audio personally means a lot to you? Maori Audio is the culmination of my love for music, sound, and expressive production. Drawn to music and sound at a young age, I decided to focus on the science of it all, how to capture and truly make sound as emotive and powerful as it needs to be in order to fully move and impact the viewer and listener. A core value would be working with those whose voice needs to be amplified. I've had the pleasure of working with many independent artists, producers, and filmmakers to make their production as strong as it can be. Amplifying the voice of the voiceless, specifically marginalized people, is a big part of my work, and it brings me joy and fulfillment as a person of color from immigrant parents to be able to do that. Now, back to the conversation. It's interesting to kind of see that being alone has become almost a negative mark. Mm -hmm. I agree. That society or just social circles kind of look at like almost everything from face, the amount of Facebook friends, LinkedIn connections, followers on uh, Instagram or whatever. And the fewer that you have, the lesser you are, right? I'm not fond of social media connection and, you know, I, I embrace the ability for technology to, to allow us to acquire a lot of important information. What I feel very strongly about is the disconnectedness and loneliness and lack of observational power that people have because they're spending all their time looking down at a phone. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times just because of the difference you know, that I'll be walking down. It, happens, it, it happened today probably five times just in the process of walking to the ferry in Sausalito, taking the ferry, getting through um, the ferry building, doing a quick errand and getting on BART to come over here to the Mission District. I saw news unfold all along the way. Really important news. Really important real-time news. It was minor news, but it was unfolding in front of me. You know, a person collapsing on the sidewalk, a uh, a person who looked like she was going to attack another person, you know, 
these things I'm seeing and I look around me and I realize that I may actually be the only person observing these things. It, and that's kind of wild. And it's simply because I'm looking up and around. <laughs> and and then meanwhile, of course, as we all know, and it's humorous and, you know, we all laugh at ourselves about this. I'm meanwhile sidestepping, you know, most of my mates on the street because they're looking down and I'm the only one looking up. So, you know, <laughs> that's the other part of the journey is, you know, navigating, weaving around everybody who's connected to their technology as they walk. So it's interesting. It's a big subject. Do you think that you have this leaning towards, I don't need to be connected all the time, or I appreciate being alone? Is it that lifelong practice of resilience? Do you think there was a conscious practice of it most of your life? As I mentioned, I, was, I have always been very sensitive and easily moved. At the same time, I, I think I was fortunate to be given the gift of courage. And so I, I always had this ability well, let me recount a quick one because this will help. When I was about five or six, my parents and I agreed I would take piano lessons. And it turned out, unbeknownst to them, that certainly wasn't, it was a surprise to all three of us. The piano teacher that I had was quite stern, that's one thing, but she was kind of mean. She had a mean streak. And she was mean to me. And she said something to me when I was five or six years old, something along the lines of, you know, you'll never get a Beethoven statue or something like that. <laughs> and, and my reaction back then as the supremely good child and a supremely sensitive child was really interesting because I refused to go back to piano lessons. But the next thing that I did, interestingly, and I'm still surprised at this today, given how small I was and how, and how afraid I was in some ways, but how courageous in other ways, I decided, well, gosh darn it, I'm going to teach myself how to play the piano. And so I kind of kept at it on my own long enough. I never became a great piano player. Don't misunderstand this story. I could, But I learned how to read music, and I learned how to play three or four songs well enough so that in our little grammar school, I could play the entry recital, you know, once a week. And then I moved on to all the other things that were fascinating about life. But there's something about that story that is very much how I'm made up. So I, I mean, I, I probably cried for two days about being spoken to so meanly. It was terribly upsetting to me. It always is. But the way in which I responded is also very typical of me. And so I guess because that was, I can remember that and I was five at the time, that makes me think it must be just something that's part of how I'm put together. So I also should mention, because I think this is somehow related, I think I was, I certainly feel that I was unique among my generation of friends because I actually never wanted to grow up. You know, a lot of the conversation that most of us remember as a child is all that conversation, particularly when you become kind of a tweener and an early teen, which is, God, I can't wait to grow up. I never felt that way. I always hoped that life would slow down and I, I would somehow not grow up. And it may sound odd, but I think that's directly connected to this idea of resilience. It's, it's that, that sort of innate sense that life is going to go by really fast. And I just wanted to slow down because it's really fun to be small. And I don't want to give up my imaginary friends and have to 
do something that's a lot more restricted. And I think I think that sort of imagination helps with resilience. So to the extent that that's a useful clue for anyone who's maybe um, overly harsh with themselves about their own like sense of resilience or their own sense of courage, you know, maybe it all boils down to just trying to retain some of those childlike characteristics. Maybe that's a clue. I don't know. So talking with our guest, I noticed certain emotions come up, not just in them, but also in other founders. This got me curious about the psychology and science behind that. I called up returning visiting expert Dr. Netra Pan, a doctorate of science who gives lectures on entrepreneurship and social change at the Faculty of Management at City, University of London's Business School, formerly known as CAS. You can find more information about her at netrapan.net. Depending on the phenomena being studied, Professor Pan's research draws from studies in social psychology, sociology, and strategy, so she can definitely drop some knowledge on us. Hello? Hey, Netra. This is Jeff. I got a question for you. As I talk with founders, one of the questions that crosses my mind is, how do humans find the courage to get up the next morning after going through really difficult personal life moments. I'd love to get your expert insight into this. Hey, Jeff. Another fascinating question. When thinking about how humans find the courage to face the day after facing difficult life moments, I think it all comes down to, again, the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. So, it becomes difficult to face a troubling situation, mostly because we're telling ourselves a story about our capacity to meet the moment. So we're trying to understand whether we have the personal resources, whether it's skill, whether it's knowledge or, or, or time. And so one of the ways that humans can find the courage to face the day is to reframe the situation. So rather than say, oh, I faced that difficult moment and I performed badly, what am I gonna do? I should stay in bed. <laughs> rather than tell that story, we can tell ourselves a different story. We can say, well, I faced this terrible moment and I, I'm still here. I faced this terrible moment and I did what I could. By changing, actually, our understanding of what we're capable of, we'll be able to feel more at ease and have less negative emotions, less stress when dealing with new situations like a new day. I also want to bring in two other things that can help us. So we talked about reframing. and. Another thing that we can remember is that we're not alone. One of my favorite experiments that I heard of is by two psychologists named uh, Glass and Singer. They did this experiment in 1971. And in this experiment, students were asked to face a stressful situation, like an exam, and they were played this really loud noise that was supposed to stress them out. And students' scores suffered when they had this noise. But what they did in the experiment is that they presented students with a button and they said, anytime you need to stop the noise, you just press this button. And amazingly, students' performance improved dramatically. The only thing is, they never pressed the button. They just knew that they could. So they knew that help was there. So in terms of finding the courage to face the day, first, tell yourself a story about what you're capable of. 
but also tell yourself the story that you have help on the way. Maybe it's your best friend on speed dial, or maybe it's, it's a complete stranger, but that button exists in some form or another. And then the final thing that I want to bring in is facing the day. What does that mean? That means so many things to so many people. And what the research, again, on social identity tells us is that people have different perceptions of what is worth it. So when you're trying to find the courage to face the day, it's worthless to try and compare yourself to other people and say, well, I need to achieve this business goal and that's why I'm getting out of bed. So it's worthless saying that I need to achieve this business goal and trying to use that to get yourself out of bed if you don't care about that business goal. Likewise, it's useless to say, I need to achieve this community-oriented goal if you're not actually attached to that particular community. And the final level of social identity is a more collective universal lens. And so it's useless to tell yourself that you're getting out of bed and you're facing the day to solve some social or societal problem if you don't actually care about that social societal problem. So the last thing I would add is when you're trying to find the courage to face the day, try to think about what really matters to you. And it might be different for you than for your best friend or for someone else. It could be just one person that you love. It could be your dog. It could be someone in your neighborhood. But the the point is that the why, the goal is going to be different for everyone. And that's okay. You just need to undertake the work to figure out what that why is for you. Thank you, Professor Pan. Thank you for the awesome conversation. I hope what we've talked about has sparked some new thoughts for our listeners to reflect on. We end each episode with this question. Ultimately, what's the point of all of this? We're all stardust. That's how I, I see it. You know, all, all, of, all of what is around us, you know, is made up of what's actually stardust. So it's what I keep in my head. Find fully curated experiences of all of our episodes at talkhumantome.com backslash episodes. Also, take a look at the work and causes our guests and visiting experts deeply care about at talkhumantome.com backslash discover. We like working with sponsors that fundamentally care about helping people reflect and reconnect. Our sponsors are offering special treats to our fans directly in the show notes or at talkhumantome.com backslash sponsors. This show takes a dedicated squad. Shoutouts to designer Lala Openi for our show's artwork and to audio engineer Mauricio Escamilla for his audio wizardry. Please check out their companies and creations in the show notes or at talkhumantome.com backslash squad. And finally, infinite love to our advisors, mentors, friends, and family. You make our existence and our ability to keep going possible. Be well, be curious, practice empathy, and stay human.